Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy. Will the world make a triumphant return to the moon in 2019? So it's nothing like as heated a race as it was in the 1960s, but the idea that there's a certain amount of competition there has warmed up. And how will Japan be attracting even more tourists? Its population is ageing and shrinking, and it needs to think of ways that the economy can continue to grow despite that. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we'll consider speculative scenarios, what-if conjectures and provocative prophecies. Today, we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by The World in 2019, The Economist's annual publication that considers the year ahead. But first, baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964 have been the most numerous cohort in America for more than five decades. But according to figures from the Pew Research Center, 2019 will be the year when their turn at the top is over. Millennials born between 1981 and 1996 will be overtaking them in number. To discuss this and the wider implications for American politics, I'm joined on the line by Jonathan Rauch, an expert in culture and governance and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Hello there, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thank you. And with me in the studio is The Economist's very own, well, close to being millennial, John Prideau, our US editor. Hello, John. Hi, I'm. So, Jonathan, what has characterised the age of the baby boomers? Baby boomers were an absolutely enormous generation, and they came of age in a time of protest. This was civil rights movement that they were leading, the Vietnam War protests, the draft. They tended to be moralistic and confrontational. Then when they became parents, they often became very protective and moralistic in that way too. Millennials tend to be more pragmatic. These are people who grew up in a time of of less plenty with less American confidence. They all remember 9-11. Great recession, of course, happened when they were struggling to get a foothold. So they tend to be less confrontational, less sanctimonious. And I think millennials tend to be a little bit more cautious. You know, they're worried about global warming. They're worried about race. They tend to be to the left. And I think, yes, if you pay attention to what goes on in liberal arts colleges in the United States, you get the impression that they're very militant. And if this balance is shifting, when do you think we would see the influence of millennials making a big difference in, say, the way politics is conducted and indeed winners and losers? Well, there's two questions there. There's cultural influence and then there's political influence. Cultural influence, we're seeing already. That's, you know, the Me Too movement in the United States is to some significant extent millennials saying, you know, we've had it. Our values have changed. We are not going to tolerate the sorts of things that earlier generations took for granted. Political, however, is a different story because one of the curious things about millennials and the generation coming after what some people call iGen is a tendency to vote in smaller numbers. Baby boomers and greatest generation and silent generation voted quite heavily, and they still do. It's been very difficult to get millennials to the polls, and that's been a huge problem for the Democratic Party and for progressives because millennials are punching way under their weight. 
Well, why are they doing that? And you told us that they're these pragmatic, they're sensitive, they're, they're, they're looking at the world around them, they feel less secure. What do you think they're doing? Why can't they just sort of get out the hipster bar and go and vote? People say it's because of a sense of futility. It's a sense that things don't really change if I vote. Of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But this is something that some of the smartest political minds in America are working very hard to understand, many of them, of course, in the Democratic Party and the progressive movement, because the Democrats have kept relying on demographic change and the coming of this more liberal millennial wave to begin a resurgence against the Republicans, and it keeps not happening because millennials keep staying home. Pew Research projects that in the U.S., the number of millennials will peak in 2036 at 76 million. Talking of the smartest political minds, we have John Prideau here, uh, U.S. editor, but also has spent a lot of time covering America. Can you begin to solve this puzzle for us? Well, this may be a case of taking two and two and making five, but it just struck me when Jonathan was talking about millennials perhaps being somewhat less materialistic. There might be a sense in which... If you are less bought into a, a democracy, i.e., you know, you don't own a house, you perhaps don't have children, perhaps you've delayed those big life decisions, the things that people get up to in Congress may seem less relevant to you and therefore you may be less engaged. I think that's, you know, that's one possibility. But then it's also true. Jonathan's absolutely right. Of course, millennials vote at lower rates and that's a headache for Democrats. Also, there are some democratic strategists who look at political science on party allegiance and the way people tend to form an attachment to a party relatively young, even if they don't actually vote. You know, people find a party in their early 20s, typically, and then kind of stick with it. So there are some Democrats who are hopeful that by the time millennials are my age, I'm not quite millennial, I think I miss out by a year on, on the definition, they will vote in larger numbers as older Americans tend to. And that kind of attachment that they form to the Democratic Party will kind of bear fruit then. When we talk about a shift to the left in politics, it's, it's often more diagnosed or diagnosed ahead of actually happening. And John, I wondered if you thought with millennials, we may be seeing, if you like, a kind of outer core of what we think of as more idealistic or left-leaning ideas, particularly around the environment, around more progressive attitudes, say, on women or Me Too. But we don't really know how they will respond to, to say, the tax code or employment policies as they go on that journey through life and therefore through the, the voting cycle. What, what's your sense talking to younger people in the States? Yeah, that's right. We, I suppose we don't know. I mean, we can make some guesses based on where millennials place themselves on those key issues, which is, you know, you say tend to um, favour the Democratic Party. It's also the case that hopefully the American political system is a dynamic one. So the parties will respond. Republicans and Democrats will have a lot more millennials representing them in, in Congress. And so things ought to, ought to change there. There's always a you know, kind of people like me who like to look at what's happening now and kind of project 20 years in the future tend to get undone. Jonathan, do you think that Donald Trump and that very divisive, absolutely, you know, you're for or very against him, do you think that has impacted on the way millennials see politics? Well, we don't know yet for sure, of course. I suspect it has. Trump is very unpopular with younger voters. And in fact, there's a direct correlation. The younger you go in the age spectrum, the more unpopular Trump is. His space is heavily white and it's heavily older. And he and the Republican Party have decided to double down on squeezing every last vote that they can out of that aging white, disproportionately though, of course, not exclusively male demographic. And the question is, first, how long can they continue to do that? And second, will millennials 
get mobilized enough about it to begin to change their political behavior and begin to engage. If they do, it will be a seismic change in American politics. If they don't, we'll muddle on this way for another five, ten years. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It was great to be with you. <laughs> and you get back to your laptop there, John Priddy. Will do. My colleague Oliver Morton is on standby to tell us if we'll be returning to the moon right after this. Next, 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of Neil Armstrong taking his giant step for mankind, as it was on July the 20th, 1969, that NASA first landed a manned module on the moon's surface. In total, only 12 white American men have witnessed seeing the Earth from the moon's surface. But 2019 is the year that the world is planning to make a triumphant lunar return. My name is Mike Simmons. I'm president of Astronomers Without Borders. Things are moving in the right direction, and space has always been difficult, and it will continue to be difficult. Uncrewed vehicles are just about ready to get there. Crewed, we'll see. That's going to take a while. Hi, I'm Steve Jerzyk. I'm a NASA Associate Administrator. We're challenging industry to develop the lander and figure out how to get the lander to the moon. And then we've challenged the science and technology community to say, hey, what hardware do you have that's already available, engineering models or prototypes, that you're willing to do some upgrading on, integrate on that lander and get, get back there within the, within the year? To discuss this and the longer-ranging plans on returning to the moon, I'm joined by Oliver Morton, The Economist's briefings editor, author of the planet remade, how geoengineering could change the world. He even has an asteroid named after him. So, Oliver, why has it been so long since we've been to the moon? Did we just lose interest? Certainly, to some extent, people lost interest because going to the moon for Apollo was a matter of signalling America's dominance technologically and politically. And once you've sent that signal, you don't need to keep sending it. You don't need to send it again. And so, to some extent, yeah, people did lose interest. But also... Going to the moon was hard. That was why America did it. John F. Kennedy said, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. And it is hard, but it's got easier. And so now more people can do it. So next year, we're going to see a couple of countries that have never landed on the moon before land. Who's going to the moon? Well, next year, we'll see launches and, we hope, landings by Israel and by India. India's smacked the moon around a bit with a probe before, but not landed on it softly. And Israel's never gone beyond Earth orbit before. So that's kind of exciting. And then over the years that follow, we expect to see lots of smaller robot craft land on the moon until eventually some humans do. And why is it more attractive now? You almost suggest that it's easier the way you might say the price points fall and so more people can do it. Is it as simple as that or do you think there are other factors driving the desire? I think the price point falling is part of it and the sense that this is no longer a game purely for governments that's been inculcated by you know, the success of Elon Musk means that more people are willing to try it in new sort of public-private partnerships. Um, I think it's also the fact that it's clear that in the long run, um, China is going to try and land someone on the moon. And so other people are thinking, should we get there first? Should we get there together? What should we do? So it's nothing like as heated a race as it was in the 1960s. But the idea that there's a certain amount of competition there has warmed up. My name is Ellen Stofan. I'm the John and Adrian Mars Director of the National Air and Space Museum. 
You know, in 2019, I can almost uh, guarantee that we're going to see new spacecraft heading towards the moon to understand the moon's past, what it can tell us about the Earth, and get ready for humans to go back to the moon. I am really hoping that we will see, uh, within the next five to seven years, humans back at the moon. What about those private companies I keep reading about lose a bit of track? Who's actually getting anywhere? Well, the um, the Israeli project is private. Um, then there are a number of American companies, both small and large, that are interested in this and who will basically be taking payloads to the moon for other people as a sort of like a taxi trucking service, which is the sort of model that we're seeing more in space these days. It's the way that NASA now pays Elon Musk or someone else to launch supplies to the space station. They don't launch them themselves. And the moon's going to run in a similar sort of way. There will be people who will truck stuff up, companies like Astrobotics or Moon Express. Moon, moon Express is at least literally named. You do know what you're getting <laughs> yes. for your money on that one, don't you? Um, and what's the role of NASA in all this? Does it come back to full salience? Or does it begin to sound like something which is the outdated model of space exploration? I think that you're seeing a move towards a new NASA, and especially in the in the context of the moon, whereby NASA contracts to, with other people to do things for it rather than tries to get to do things itself. The big question is NASA does still have uh, an extraordinarily expensive and rather silly rocket that it's developing called the Space Launch System. And as long as it's tied to that, it will go on sort of like trying to do things itself. But I think that rocket probably, uh, it, the writing is on the wall for it. So you think another power might overtake America as the great space conquering entity? I don't think, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case because I think NASA will still buy into this. And I don't think anyone, I mean, at the moment, America spends far more on space, both in civilian and military terms than anyone else does. But I think it will become more first among equals. I mean, we'll see uh, it, it fairly soon, we don't know exactly when, a larger Chinese space station, not as large as the international one, but a large one being launched. As I said, we're probably going to see um, Indian astronauts sometime in the next 10 years. We're probably going to see Chinese astronauts going as far as the moon somewhere around 2030. So America does have a big lead and a lot of capacity, but it's not going to be the only game in town. You've got an asteroid named after you. Would you like to have your foot on the moon? Under some circumstances, not if it involved something very, very rigorous. But one of the interesting things about the moon is that it's simultaneously the furthest nearby place and the nearest really far out place. I mean, trips to Mars will take years to go there and come back, very, very arduous. It's just about conceivable that people could go to the moon for a holiday within 50 years or so. I'm not counting on it. You sound like you think it's a bit like, too much like hard work. No, I just think I'm going to be dead. <laughs> Thank you very much, Oliver. You're welcome, Anne. And finally, the future plans for tourism in Japan. It's a country endowed with an embarrassment of riches. Be it the skyscrapers in Shibuya crossing in Tokyo, sublime temples in Kyoto, tropical beaches in Okinawa, and some of the world's best skiing in Hokkaido. It seems there are many reasons to visit, and the numbers of people doing so have tripled in the last five years to just under 30 million. But the government is taking an even more active approach to encourage tourists to come along. To discuss how they plan to do it, I'm joined on the phone by Sarah Burke, The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. Hello there, Sarah. Hi, Anne. 
So tourism is essential for countries and for their development and economic well-being. But why is Japan upping its game now? Japan is very keen to have more tourism, not because it's developing, but for the opposite reason. Its population is ageing and shrinking, and it needs to think of ways that the economy can continue to grow despite that. And Japan has for a long time been very homogenous and quite sort of closed to the world compared to other countries. And so now that's gradually changing. So the two strands are coming together and makes tourism an obvious thing that Japan could, could use to bring economic growth in the future. And are there specific groups of people that they're looking to attract? Yes. I mean, at the moment, around 85% of tourists come from Asia. And that makes sense. It's, it's close by. There are cultural similarities. But Japan would like people to come from further afield, partly because it thinks they would stay for longer and partly because it thinks they would spend more money because they're either wealthier generally or they're going to stay for longer. So it would like to change who's actually coming as well. And what are they actually doing to encourage tourists outside the usual marketing ploys of billboards and maybe giving some trips to people who want to go and find out about it? They're doing a lot of marketing around the Rugby World Cup, which is in Japan in 2019 and around the Olympics in 2020, also in Tokyo. But they're trying to make it easier for people to come up with ideas of what to do. So trying to put together packages of, oh, you can take this train and go here. And once you're there, you can do this and stay here. As opposed to at the moment where people have to sort of figure it out for themselves and put things together. So that's one thing they're doing. Another thing they're doing is trying to market places that aren't necessarily in tourist minds. So people know about Tokyo, they know about maybe Kyoto, perhaps a couple of other places, but they're showing them lovely pictures of autumn leaves or of skiing, um, things that people might not know about but be enticed by. Japan achieved its target of 20 million annual tourists by 2020, five years early. It has a new goal of 40 million by 2020 and 60 million by 2030, generating an estimated $130 billion a year. What do you think might stand in the way of tourists going? You're a woman on the spot and you can see what's great about the place, but you might also see what puts people off. What would you ask them to address? I mean, there are a couple of things. One is there is a high language barrier. So there's a lot more signage in English, but it can be difficult to to get around, especially in rural areas. And I think that leads to the other thing is a lot of people now are looking for travel where they get to know maybe a bit of the population or have a more of an experiential thing rather than just seeing things. And in Japan, that can be hard in the big cities. People are busy and they aren't necessarily chatty in the way that you might find in Delhi or in other places. That's different in the rural areas, but a few things like that, trying to get people out to those areas where they can do more maybe homestays or get to know the, the people a bit. How much do you think the society, as you experience it, can handle this kind of exponential growth? It's already gone up a lot and there's clearly a desire to push it even further as we go towards the Olympics. I mean, I think the key thing is really spreading it out. People are quite quite keen, actually, to have interactions with more people from outside, but they don't want it to damage or threaten their environment, which is incredibly clean compared to anywhere else. Or way of life, which is, again, is quite unique and special because Japan is not a very diverse country. So you do get grumbles in some of the cities like Kyoto that are just inundated with tourists. So both the government and people, I think, are trying to spread these tourists out a bit so that they don't have that backlash. And Japanese citizens, do you get the impression they're getting on board with this or that they perhaps see these plans to increase tourism levels as a bit of a mixed blessing? 
I think especially in the rural areas, they're getting on board with it. And among young people, I mean, young people are much keener to have more interaction with outsiders. And that's easy if they come to you rather than you having to go to them. But in the towns, well, especially in places like Kyoto, there's a sort of mixed feelings about it. And if I become one of these millions of tourists uh, heading off to Japan, which actually I am thinking of doing, give me a, a couple of highlights that I might not have thought of doing. Ah, uh, well, the Seto Inland Sea is one. It's this little sea between two of Japan's island, main islands. There are four main islands. And it's full of these lovely islands. Uh, some have nothing on them. Some you can cycle between. Some have fabulous art on them. There's also Shikoku, which is the fourth biggest island in Japan. And it's this wonderful mixture of nature with hidden valleys and rivers and walking that you can do and lots of fresh, lovely food. Very rural, lots of friendly people. Definitely a highlight if you can make it there. Sounds like you've done your bit for the drive. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks a lot. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can find out more about these stories in our annual publication, The World in 2019, or online at theworldin.com. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. <laughs>